0: So we are in the second week um, of a series that we're calling Tighten the Knot. And so we're talking about relationships, um, specifically last week and the next couple of weeks, uh, marriages, but we're, many of these dynamics apply to not just marriages, but relationships. And, and ultimately, uh, talk about in this last week, or in our, in our last uh, week of the series, talk about uh, being in relationship, with whether or not you're married, whether you're single, whether you're married, but just our relationships uh, in general. But this week, we're going to be um, in Matthew 19. And so as we go, I, I kept finding myself looking, especially the way that our passage starts out, I keep finding myself looking at the chapter before. Because many times the way that the gospel writers collect these, they, they were collections of how Jesus taught them. Many of times they're chronological, many times they're, they're captured in groups of, of, of like thoughts. Um, but we're going to be talking about oneness, we're going to, I, I, I kind of joked with a couple of the guys this morning, I, I kind of helped lay out or lay out the teaching calendar and how um, individuals fall and we just basically, we just go in a rotation and we work through our passages regardless of the book of the Bible, what the topics and that type of thing. Um, and certain times I resonate with individuals, and we'll switch the schedule up. But uh, I, I uh, have the privilege and opportunity to speak on oneness, but also in that speak on divorce as well. So I'm going to do that slowly, but confidently as we go through this. Um, because Jesus is all about our heart versus religion, he's about our heart. And there's information here to speak to couples. In the greatest of times, the, uh, Jesus, in these passages, speaks to maybe couples... That may be in some of the worst of times. He's speaking to those that may be single. He's speaking to those that may have found themselves gone through divorce. Um, But we look at these scriptures because it outlines his plan for marriage. and, And what he longs for. What God created and what he longs for. But before we get to that. So, one, be praying for that, right? Okay. Uh, as we go through, I, in Matthew 18, and I'm not going to read through that chapter, but, you know, he touches on things when they ask, hey, who's the greatest in the kingdom? And, and he's teaching humility. He's teaching temptations of sin he's teaching about the parable of the lost sheep he's teaching about a brother or someone who's sinning against you and ultimately he he he's teaching about the parable of the unforgiving servant and of servant and so he's talking about forgiveness and it's a theme that's woven through chapter 18 is heart and forgiveness. And so then we find ourselves in chapter 19, verse 1, now, so you always know that like there's a shift. It hasn't been a continuous. So now, when Jesus had finished these sayings. He went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and and he healed them there. And so Matthew gives us this setting, right? And he talks about Jesus' geographical movement, shows us kind of where he's going, and then shares these miracles. And we're not necessarily told specifically, but we're told that he is healing people and so after Jesus finishes up teaching about forgiveness in chapter 18 he moves on from Galilee and kind of bringing to end that ministry to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan so where is he going well he's moving towards Jerusalem right he's moving towards he's moving towards the cross He's moving deliberately toward the final and ultimate act of forgiveness. But before he gets to Jerusalem, he stops. We're told to heal the crowds. So this wasn't a situation, at least, that we're we're told where he specifically heals this blind person or this lame person. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. How large? We don't know. How many were healed? We don't know. But Jesus didn't just heal one. It was, It's as if he healed the whole crowds, plural, right? He healed this large crowd, and this large crowd moved towards Jerusalem. And then after this healing came the Pharisees. This isn't their first trip or won't be their last trip because Jesus is continuing to shake up their world, right? And these are the, the, the religious leaders, the Pharisees. And instead of, we're told they're, they're, this healing has been going on, and instead of asking, where do your you know, where do these miracles come from? Where where is this power? They ask about divorce. Instead of asking hey, tell us more about death and resurrection. What are what are you teaching? Help us to understand. Hey, we need to know your stance on divorce. Instead of asking are you the Messiah, the promised one? That we have waited and waited and waited, they Ask about divorce. And the Pharisees, verse 3, and the Pharisees came up to him and tested him. can be translated tempted, um, same way Adam and Eve were tempted in the garden. Jesus was tempted in the wilderness. And so these religious leaders come very purposefully meandering up to Christ, and basically if Jesus moves, or their plan is, if Jesus moves a little bit this way, and he, then he doesn't revere Moses, and we'll look at this, or he moves a little bit this way, oh, so then man can just indulge in any kind of lust or problem. The trap springs, he's caught, and down he goes out of our hair that's their thought process and so here jesus not only teaches us what he longs for in a relationship as marriage was created but he deals with what was in his day much as it is in our own day this this vexing burning question and divorce was, was something where there was no unanimous agreement among the Jews. And the Pharisees were deliberately trying to involve Jesus in this controversy. Again, not the first time, it won't be the last time as he moves purposefully to the cross. And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him, tempted him by asking is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, being Christ, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer but two but one. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And they said to him, Why why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and and to send her away? Jesus replies, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his his wife, and this is the disciples now speaking, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. And he goes on in verse 12 to explain, For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. And so historically, there's not not been any nation that has had a higher view of of marriage than the Jews. Mar- marriage was a sacred duty. To remain unmarried unmarried basically after like 20 years except in order to concentrate on on the study of the law was to break commandments that they had to to, they viewed to be fruitful and multiply the man who had no children it was said slew on his own posterity and lessened the image of God upon earth marriage was not to be entered into carelessly or lightly Josephus outlines the the Jewish approach to marriage uh, based on Mosaic teaching. A man must marry of a virgin, of good parentage. He must never seduce another man's wife. He must not marry a a woman who had been a slave or prostitute. If a man accused his wife of not being uh, pure before marriage, he must bring proof of this accusation. Her father or brother must defend her. If the girl was vindicated, he must take her in marriage and could never again put her away. If the accusation was proved to, be a, to have been reckless or malicious, the man uh, who made it must be beaten with 40 stripes, save one, and pay 50 shekels to the girl's father. But if the charge was proved and the girl found guilty, if she was the one of the ordinary people, the law was that she must be stoned to death, and if she was the daughter of a priest, she was burned alive. If a man seduced a girl who was engaged to be married and the seduction took place with her consent, both were put to death. If in a lonely place, where there was no help, the man forced himself upon a woman. The man alone was put to death. The Jewish laws of marriage and of purity aimed very high. Now, ideally, divorce was hated. We see in Malachi two sixteen, God had said, I hate divorce. What's up? I was going to grab one of those coffees. (laughs) It was said that the very altar wept tears when a man divorced the wife of his youth. But ideal and actuality didn't go hand in hand. and In the situation, there were a couple of dangerous and really damaging elements that went on in that culture. First, in the eyes of the Jewish law, a woman was a thing. She was a possession of her father or of her husband, as the case may be, and therefore she had technically no legal rights at all. Most Jewish marriages were arranged either by the parents or by a professional matchmaker. Um, And a girl might be engaged to be married in childhood and and was often engaged to be married to a man that she had never even met or seen before. Um, Now, there was a little bit of a safeguard there in the fact that when she came of age at 12, uh, she could reject her father's choice of of a husband. I'm not sure that my kids are going to be able to, like, go the bathroom on their own and tie their shoes still at 12 but it's probably poor parenting um, in the matters of divorce uh, the general law was that the initiative must lie uh with the husband and the, the law ran a woman may be divorced with or without her consent uh But a man can be divorced only by his consent. The woman could never initiate that process. Uh, And the second dangerous element uh, that was prevalent then uh, was the process of divorce was ridiculously easy. Although they had this high view, um, they basically, well, uh, the process is found in the passage of the Mosaic Law, uh, which Jesus' questioners were referring to in Deuteronomy 24. Suppose a man enters into marriage with a woman, but she does not please him because he finds something objectionable about her, so he writes her a certificate of divorce puts it in her hand, and sends her out of the house. Basically just declares it. I don't know, I mean, I know we've got some office fans, but it reminded me of the episode with Michael where he declares bankruptcy. And then everybody basically explains to him, you can't just yell bankruptcy and have all your debt forgiven. But this is kind of what we see here: jot down, see you later, and hand it off. The bill uh, of divorcement was a simple one-sentence statement that the husband dismissed his wife. Um, and again, Jovi- Josephus is, is penned that he desire that. He that desires to be divorced from his wife for any cause whatsoever, let him in writing give assurance. Sounds like one of those fast-talking things at the end of a car commercial, right? But blah, 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 blah. give assurance that she will never use, uh, that you'll never use, want her back as a wife. Basically, is what it's saying. Um, but the safeguard against this process, um, the ease of it, was the fact that unless the woman was really this notorious sinner if a man did that it was then common for him to return whatever dowry had been given um so we're just we're trying to lay a foundation look at the process where we're coming from uh and where we're going to find ourselves Jewish uh grounds for divorce um is really where They were trying to pin Jesus down. Um, And one of the big problems in this was interpretation. Go figure. That enactment stated that a man may divorce his wife if she does not please him because he finds something objectionable about her. So the question was, how is this something objectionable interpreted? And on one point, you had a a group of, of rabbis well, there there were two groups vehemently against one another. Right, we can't understand that in our own culture. Two groups that make up the mass and don't like. And so we've got one group. The 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 Shemai were quite clear that that something objectionable meant. Fornication and only fornication alone. And that, uh, th- it was a very narrow, specific interpretation of that. There was no other cause. So even if she was mischievous and running around, as long as she did not commit adultery, that was it. Now, the other s- side, the more, uh, the wider let's say, uh, interpretation, was the school of Hillel. And it interpreted th- this something objectionable in this widest possible way. A- and they said that it meant that a man could divorce his wife basically if she spoiled his dinner, <laughs> if she went with her hair unbound, that spoke to men in the streets, uh, spoke disrespectfully of his parents in his presence. I guess it's cool to talk behind his back, but to to disrespect. Or if she was an argumentative woman, like that she spoke so loudly that someone in the house next door could hear. And so they went even so far as to say the phrase that phrase, basically, if she does not please him, however, man could divorce even if he just found a woman that was more pleasing to look at. And so tragically, as you can probably guess the school of Hallel, this, this wider interpretation was the view that prevailed. And the marriage bond wa- was often lightly held and divorce on the most trivial grounds was was pretty common. And when Jesus was asked this question, at the back of it, was a situation which was vexed and troubled. He was to answer it in a way which came really as probably a surprise to either side of this. Which, suggesting, much as Jesus did, a radical change in the whole situation, the whole view of it. And so, in effect, the Pharisees, again, were asking Jesus whether he he was in this camp, whether he was in this camp. And Jesus' answer was to take things back to the very beginning, back to the ideal of the creation. In the beginning, he said, God created Adam and Eve, man and woman. Inevitably, in the very circumstances of the story of creation, Adam and Eve were created for each other, right? I mean, for no one else. Their union was necessarily complete and unbreakable. But now Jesus says these two are the pattern. They're the the symbol of all who were to come. The argument's clear in the case of Adam and Eve divorce was not only inadvisable it it was not only wrong it was completely impossible well simple reason they were the only ones that were there there's nobody else for them to to marry but therefore Jesus was laying down this principle this, this principle that divorce is wrong. Okay, This principle. I think it's wise to kind of quickly touch on the difference between principle and a law. Principle and law. L- laws are imposed from the outside. They must be obeyed. Otherwise, you incur some type of penalty, punishment, a fine, you go to jail, whatever, you do these things. Whereas principles or morals are internal, and they force you to do what you think is right, what you think is correct. So here at once, the Pharisees saw this point of attack. Moses, in Deuteronomy 24, had said that if a man wished to divorce his wife because she didn't please him and because of something objectionable in her, he could give her a bill of divorce and the marriage was dissolved. Here was the very chance the Pharisees wanted. They could now say to Jesus, are you saying Moses was wrong? Are you saying, are you seeking to repeal This law which was given to Moses, are you you setting yourself above Moses as a lawgiver? And Jesus says, whoa, 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 hold on. Moses said, what Moses said was in fact not a law, but more a concession. Moses did not command divorce. At best, he was permitting it because in order to regulate this situation, they had just gone out of control in their time. So the Mosaic regulation, what, what they were presenting to him was a concession to the fallen human nature. In Genesis 2, 4, we have the ideal which God intended. The ideal that two people who marry should become so indissolubly one that they are one flesh. Maybe you've seen at a, a, at a marriage ceremony uh, many times they'll uh, take two different colors sand. Um, or salt and, and, and pour them from two different vessels into one vessel, basically intertwining the two to where it, it would be futile to try and sort them back out or taking uh, colors and putting them in water, food colors and water, that type of thing. It's these, these two becoming one. Jesus's answer was true Moses permitted divorce but that was a concession in view of a lost ideal the ideal of marriage is to be found in the unbreakable this perfect union of Adam and Eve that is what God meant marriage to be and so we're going to talk about that 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 union that that oneness the, the Jewish ideal gives us the the basis kind of of the Christian ideal. The Jewish term for marriage was uh, Kedushun, and Kedushun meant sanctification. It meant consecration. It was used to describe something which was dedicated to God as his exclusive Possession. Anything totally surrendered to God was kiddushun. And this meant that in marriage, the husband was consecrated to the wife, and the wife to the husband. The one became the exclusive possession of the other as much as an offering became the exclusive possession of God. And that's what Jesus meant when he said that for the sake of marriage, a man would leave his father, leave his mother, be joined to his wife. And that's what he meant when he said that the husband and wife became so totally one that they could be called one flesh. That's God's ideal of marriage as the Genesis story saw it in Genesis 2 24 and that's the ideal which Jesus is restating now that idea has several different dynamics to it this total unity means that marriage is not given for one act in life however important that act may be While physical intimacy is an important part of marriage, it's not the whole of it. Any marriage entered into simply because of this (laughs) urgent physical desire can't be satisfied no other way is probably from the outset going to be doomed to failure. Marriage is given not that two people should do one thing together, but that they should do all things together. And so marriage is the total union of two personalities, two unique individuals. Two people can exist together in a variety of different ways. You've experienced that. One can be a, a dominant partner to such an extent that nothing matters but the wishes and the convenience and the aims in life of that one partner while the other is totally subservient, submissive, and exists only to serve the the desires and the needs of the other. Two people can exist in a kind of armed neutrality where there's this continuous tension, continuous opposition, continuous collision between their wishes. Life can be like just one long argument. And the relationship's best is based at best on this uneasy like truce or compromise. Two people can base their relationship on more or less resigned acceptance of one another. All intents and purposes while they live their life together, each one kinda does their own thing. Goes their own way. Each has their their own life. Share the same house, but exaggeration to say they share the home, right? Clearly, none of these relationships is the ideal. The ideal, what Christ longs for us, what God created for us, is that in marriage, in that marriage state, two people find the complementing of their personalities. Marriage shouldn't narrow life, but it, it should complete it. For both partners, it must bring a new fullness, a new satisfaction, a new contentment. It's the union of two personalities in which the two complete each other. Now, that doesn't mean that adjustments and sacrifices have to be made. But it means that the final relationship is fuller, it's more joyous, it's more satisfying together. Marriage is intended and should be this sharing of all the circumstances of life. Now, there is a certain danger in the delightful time of courtship or dating or whatever you call it, it's almost inevitable that the two people will see each other at their best. The glamour days, we'll say. They often see each other dressed up, they're they're looking their best, they're going out somewhere specific to enjoy themselves, to, to have fun. Uh, money's not enough like not a problem like all these different problems or issues are not in that mix but for those that are married and some married for a very long time Realize two people must see each other when they're not at their best. <laughs> when they're tired, when they're weary, when money's tight, food and clothes and bills may be a problem. When moonlight and roses, right, become the, the kitchen sink and the colicky newborn. Unless two people are prepared to face the routine of life as well as the glamour of life, I don't know if it's going to make it. And lastly, it's not necessarily universal, but much more likely to be true truer than not. A marriage where you have a extended time to get to know someone, a courtship, let's say, or a, a, a time of dating. Um, when you get two people involved, it, you really understand and know someone's background. Much more likely to be successful that was something when we moved up here that didn't really wasn't really taught to me necessarily well uh, wasn't taught to me um, and we tried to be more purposeful with our kids but in my day and time you just went on dates like you just were like oh let's let's go on a date let's go on a date let's go on a date then you were going steady and then you're supposed to only go with that but the really the background and that's fun to do as friends but uh, but it's interesting because really shouldn't we if you're sp- is spending extended time with someone you should be asking is this someone is this someone I could spend the rest of my life with met, and we may even have some earlier, I'm sure we have some earlier times, but Emily and I met um, in our, our senior year of high school. So I've known her wh- well over half my lo- life. I, I know m- I've been with her longer than I was without her, and many of us uh, are in that boat, but I can tell you back then, I wasn't thinking, is this a person I want to be with my whole life? I'm thinking, is this one I want to be with on Friday night? <laughs> 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 and luckily, of the two, she had her head on straight. <laughs> but marriage means this constant togetherness, and it's perfectly possible for ingrained habits and and unconscious mannerisms and these ways of of upbringing to collide, right? But the fuller the knowledge people have uh, of each other before they decide to become engaged or ultimately married, the longer that that time is, the more that you are purposefully learning about someone, the better it's not to deny there c- can be love at first sight, and I do believe love can, can conquer all things. But the fact is, that the greater mutual knowledge you have of each other, the more likely you are to succeed. And so all this leads us to this, fi- to this final conclusion. The basis of marriage is togetherness. And the basis of togetherness is nothing more, uh, nothing other than selflessness. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. If marriage is to succeed, the partners must always be thinking more of each other than themselves. Selfishness is the murderer of any personal relationships. And it's the truest of all when two people are bound together in marriage. The true basis of marriage is not complicated, it's not difficult to understand, it's simply the love which thinks more of the happiness of the other than it thinks of its own the love which is proud to serve, the love which is able to understand, and therefore, as Christ taught us in all, most of his teaching, but specifically, as we saw in chapter 18 of Matthew, always able to forgive. His disciples stop him, or respond to him. I don't know that they stopped him, but if only if the only reason it, for divorce between a man and his wife stands thus, it is not expedient to marry. They said, "Nope, I'm out." Christ says, not, not all can receive the saving saying, but only those to whom it has been granted to do so." And so Jesus says quite clearly that not everyone can in fact accept this situation of marriage but only those to whom it's been granted to do so in other words only the Christian can accept the Christian ethic right only those who have the continual help of Jesus Christ and the continual guidance of the Holy Spirit can build up the personal relationship which the ideal of marriage demands, this, this personal relationship. Only by the help of Christ can, can they develop the sympathy, the understanding, the forgiving spirit, and, and the considerate love which true marriage requires. Without that, these things are impossible, without Christ. The Christian ideal of marriage involves this, this, the prerequisite that the partners are believers in a Christian marriage. Here's the truth which goes far beyond this application. i I've heard several I, I've heard people say many times we, we see the value of these morals. we see the- I acknowledge the value of these more like the Sermon on the Mount. We studied that months back. I see. And accept the the morals, the ethics of the Sermon on the Mount, but I'm not really worried about the divinity of Jesus, about his resurrection, his risen presence, his Holy Spirit, all that kind of thing. We accept he was a good man, that his teaching was the highest teaching ever given. Let's just leave it at that and get on with life and Get out of that teaching and never mind the theology, right? But the answer's simple. No one can live out Christ's teaching without Christ. And if Jesus was only this great and good man, he, even if he was the greatest and the best of men, then at most he was just a good example. His teaching becomes possible only in the conviction and the knowledge in our heart that he's not dead. He is here. He is here with us in his spirit to help us carry that out. The teachings of Christ demands the presence of Christ. Otherwise, it's only this impossible, torturing ideal. So we have to face that Christian marriage is possible only for believers. So now we've made it around the horn, so to speak, and I don't want to end this without really looking at this matter of divorce in the here and now, in the present. At the beginning, we, we talked about or noted that Jesus had laid down this, this, this principle. It wasn't a command, nor was what Moses had, had called. It was actually a concession, but Jesus lays down as outlining the beginning of Genesis in the relationship of Adam and eve Jesus was laying down this principle and so to turn this saying or to turn this principle to rigid law I think is to gravely misunderstand what Jesus is teaching here the bible Teaches us a a, a foundation, a, a way of living, and we must prayerfully and discerningly apply those truths in our situations. Exodus twenty, we. We see of the Sabbath, the Bible says, you shall not do any work, and in in point of fact, we know that a complete cessation of work was never possible, regardless of the civilization. Matthew 12, 1 through 8, "At at that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat, but when the Pharisees saw it they said to him look your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath and Jesus says to him have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence which it was not lawful for him to eat nor for those who were with him but only for the priests or have you not read the in the law how on the sabbath the priests in the temple profane the sabbath and are guiltless i tell you something greater than the temple is here and if you had known what this means i desire mercy not sacrifice you would not have condemned the guiltless for the son of man is the lord of the sabbath see jesus desires our hearts not our religion A principle can never be quoted as a a final law. A principle must always be applied to the situation. Therefore, I don't believe to to settle the question of, of divorce simply by quoting these words of Christ. That, to me, would be a legalism. Mistake the words of Christ as as a principle, as as a foundation, and apply them to the individual cases, and so with that truths emerge. Beyond all doubt, the ideal is that marriage should be an indissoluble union between two people, and that marriage should be entered into as a total union of two personalities not designed to make one act possible but designed to make all life this satisfy mutually completing fellowship that's the essential basis that we have to proceed on but life is and never will be completely tidy orderly business, right? Two people enter into a marriage relationship. They have the highest hopes and the the highest ideals. Suppose that something unaccountably goes wrong in that relationship, which would be life's greatest joy, becomes hell on earth. At that point, all available resources, all available help must be called in to mend in any way this situation. Physical issues, psychological situations, spiritual And after those things are addressed, the, tr- the trouble may still be there. And suppose if one of the partners to the marriage is so const- constituted physically or, or mentally or spiritually that, this, that that marriage is an impossibility, are then these two to be forever fettered together in this situation that can't do anything other than bring a lifetime of misery for one another. It's extremely difficult to see how such reasoning would be come to. It's extremely hard to, uh, to see Jesus legalistically condemning two people to a situation. Now, this is not to say that that divorce should be made easy or is easy or should be what you should be contemplating. But it's to say that when all physical and mental and spiritual resources have been brought to bear on such a situation and the situation remains incurable or even dangerous then the situation may need to be ended and the church should do everything it can in strength and tenderness to help them there doesn't seem any other way me. This whole matter is one to which we might well bring more sympathy, less condemnation for all the things the failure of a marriage must least be approached in legalism and most in love. What is wanted is there should be prayerful care and thought before before entering into marriage and that if marriage is in danger of failure every possible resource should be mobilized to save it but if there's something beyond that mending the situation should be dealt with with understanding love this is a pretty hot can be a pretty hot topic um, I've prayed through this I've looked over this I understand that there may be individuals in here that don't agree with me we'll make an email address available Now I would encourage you to have conversations with with me um, this is as I've studied, as I've looked, as I've prayed as I've chewed um, and not entered into lightly um, but that's what we're called to do as individuals as we share this teaching to, to come together with one another and uh, and seek the Holy Spirit to guide and direct us. Um, So I hope this was a benefit to you. I hope we looked at different dynamics of, of what God truly longs for in a relationship, in that oneness, that can't, should not be separated. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father God, we we just pray this morning for relationships. God, we pray for individuals that may be in a struggle as we meet this morning. They may not know what lies at at the next pass but god you do and god my prayer would be that we as the church would be feel more called and used more deeply in mending those situations that we would be your hands and feet Lord, I know it's (laughs) confessing for myself. It's much easier to say, I'll pray for you and then go home. Or I'll pray for you and then go about our way. But my prayer for myself and for this church is to pray and then act. Pray for, pray along with, reach out, minister, walk alongside of. Sometimes I've found, and it's a painful reminder, that all I need to do is sit and listen. So, God, I just pray that we would be your hands, that we would be your feet, that we would work hard in those of us that have been called to a relationship and marriage. And, God, we acknowledge that not all have been called. Not all. God, our life is about loving you. that in a marriage but we can do that as individuals so God le- don't let those that, that aren't in relationship just sit and and, and long and, and wonder what they're missing out because God they are in the most unique place to be able to pour everything of themselves into loving you God, I see that as a wonderful gift. So we just lift up our body. We lift up our community. We pray that strong marriages would minister to maybe struggling marriages. And that we would seek to change our heart. We pray these things in your